Twelve Years a Slave Solomon Northup Chapter 16 With the exception of my trip to St. Mary's Parish and my absence during the cane-cutting seasons, I was constantly employed on the plantation of Master Epps. He was considered but a small planter, not having a sufficient number of hands to require the services of an overseer, acting in the latter capacity himself. Not able to increase his force, it was his custom to hire during the hurry of cotton picking. On larger estates, employing fifty or a hundred, or perhaps two hundred hands, an overseer is deemed indispensable. These gentlemen ride into the field on horseback, without an exception to my knowledge, armed with pistols, bowie knife, whip, and accompanied by several dogs. They follow, equipped in this fashion, in rear of the slaves, keeping a sharp lookout upon them all. The requisite qualifications in an overseer are utter heartlessness, brutality, and cruelty. It's his business to produce large crops, and if that's accomplished, no matter what amount of suffering it may have cost, the presence of the dogs are necessary to overhaul a fugitive who may take to his heels, as is sometimes the case when faint or sick, he's unable to maintain his row and unable also to endure the whip. The pistols are reserved for any dangerous emergency, there having been instances when such weapons were necessary. Goaded into uncontrollable madness, even the slave will sometimes turn upon his oppressor. The gallows were standing at Marksville last January, upon which one was executed a year ago for killing his overseer. It occurred not many miles from Epps' plantation on Red River. The slave was given his task at splitting rails. In the course of the day, the overseer sent him on an errand, which occupied so much time that it wasn't possible for him to perform the task. The next day he was called to an account, but the loss of time occasioned by the errand was no excuse, and he was ordered to kneel and bear his back for the reception of the lash. They were in the woods alone, beyond the reach of sight or hearing. The boy submitted until maddened at such injustice and insane with pain. He sprang to his feet and, seizing an axe, literally chopped the overseer in pieces. He made no attempt whatever at concealment, but hastening to his master, related the whole affair and declared himself ready to expiate the wrong by the sacrifice of his life. He was led to the scaffold, and while the rope was around his neck, maintained an undismayed and fearless bearing, and with his last words justified the act. Besides the overseer, there are drivers under him, the number being in proportion to the number of hands in the field. The drivers are black, who in addition to the performance of their equal share of work, are compelled to do the whipping of their several gangs. Whips hang round their necks, and if they fail to use them thoroughly, are whipped themselves. They have a few privileges, however. For example, in cane cutting, the hands are not allowed to sit down long enough to eat their dinners. Carts filled with corn cake, cooked at the kitchen, are driven into the field at noon. The cake is distributed by the drivers and must be eaten with the least possible delay. When the slave ceases to perspire, as he often does when taxed beyond his strength, he falls to the ground and becomes entirely helpless. 
It's then the duty of the driver to drag him into the shade of the standing cotton or cane or of a neighboring tree where he dashes buckets of water upon him and uses other means of bringing out perspiration again when he's ordered to his place and compelled to continue his labor. At Huff Power, when I first came to Epps, Tom, one of Robert's Negroes, was driver. He was a burly fellow and severe in the extreme. After Epps' removal to Bayou Boeuf, the distinguished honor was conferred upon myself. Up to the time of my departure, I had to wear a whip about my neck in the field. If Epps was present, I dared not show any lenity, not having the Christian fortitude of a certain well-known Uncle Tom sufficiently to brave his wrath by refusing to perform the office. In that way only, I escaped the immediate martyrdom he suffered and withal saved my companions much suffering as it proved in the end. Epps, I soon found, whether actually in the field or not, had his eyes pretty generally upon us. From the piazza, from behind some adjacent tree, or other concealed point of observation, he was perpetually on the watch. If one of us had been backward or idle through the day, we were apt to be told all about it on returning to the quarters, and as it was a matter of principle with him to reprove every offense of that kind that came within his knowledge, the offender not only was certain of receiving a castigation for his tardiness, but I likewise was punished for permitting it. If, on the other hand, he'd seen me use the lash freely, the man was satisfied. Practice makes perfect, truly, and during my eight years' experience as a driver, I learned to handle the whip with marvelous dexterity and precision, throwing the lash within a hair's breadth of the back, the ear, the nose, without, however, touching either of them. If Epps was observed at a distance, or we had reason to apprehend he was sneaking somewhere in the vicinity, I would commence plying the lash vigorously, when, according to arrangement, they would squirm and screech as if in agony although not one of them had in fact even been grazed. Patsy would take occasion, if he made his appearance presently, to mumble in his hearing some complaints that Platt was lashing them the whole time, and Uncle Abram, with an appearance of honesty peculiar to himself, would declare roundly I had just whipped them worse than General Jackson whipped the enemy at New Orleans. If Epps was not drunk, and in one of his beastly humors, this was, in general, satisfactory. If he was, someone or more of us must suffer as a matter of course. Sometimes his violence assumed a dangerous form, placing the lives of his human stock in jeopardy. On one occasion, the drunken madman thought to amuse himself by cutting my throat. He'd been absent at Holmesville in attendance at a shooting match, and none of us were aware of his return. While hoeing by the side of Patsy, she exclaimed in a low voice, suddenly, Platt, do you see old Hogjaw beckoning me to come to him? Glancing sideways, I discovered him in the edge of the field, motioning and grimacing, as was his habit when half intoxicated. Aware of his lewd intentions, Patsy began to cry. I whispered her not to look up and to continue at her work as if she'd not observed him. Suspecting the truth of the matter, however, he soon staggered up to me in a great rage. "'What did you say to Pats?' he demanded, 
with an oath. I made him some evasive answer, which only had the effect of increasing his violence. How long have you owned this plantation, say, you damn nigger? He inquired with a malicious sneer, at the same time taking hold of my shirt collar with one hand and thrusting the other into his pocket. Now I'll cut your black throat. That's what I'll do, drawing his knife from his pocket as he said it. But with one hand he was unable to open it, until finally, seizing the blade in his teeth, I saw he was about to succeed and felt the necessity of escaping from him, for in his present reckless state it was evident he was not joking by any means. My shirt was open in front, and as I turned round quickly and sprang from him, while he still retained his grip, it was stripped entirely from my back. There was no difficulty now in eluding him. He would chase me until out of breath, then stop until it was recovered, swear, and renew the chase again. Now he would command me to come to him, now endeavor to coax me, but I was careful to keep at a respectful distance. In this manner we made the circuit of the field several times, he making desperate plunges, and I always dodging them, more amused than frightened, well knowing that when his sober senses returned, he would laugh at his own drunken folly. At length I observed the mistress standing by the yard fence, watching our half-serious, half-comical maneuvers. Shooting past him, I ran directly to her. Epps, on discovering her, didn't follow. He remained about the field an hour or more, during which time I stood by the mistress, having related the particulars of what had taken place. Now she was aroused again, denouncing her husband and Patsy about equally. Finally, Epps came towards the house, by this time nearly sober, walking demurely, with his hands behind his back, and attempting to look as innocent as a child. As he approached, nevertheless, Mistress Epps began to berate him roundly, heaping upon him many rather disrespectful epithets, demanding for what reason he had attempted to cut my throat. Epps made wondrous strange of it all, and to my surprise, swore by all the saints in the calendar he'd not spoken to me that day. Platt, you lie a nigger, have I? was his brazen appeal to me. It's not safe to contradict a master, even by the assertion of a truth. So I was silent. And when he entered the house, I returned to the field, and the affair was never after alluded to. Shortly after this time, a circumstance occurred that came nigh divulging the secret of my real name and history, which I'd so long and carefully concealed, and upon which I was convinced depended my final escape. Soon after, he purchased me. Epps asked me if I could write and read, and on being informed that I had received some instruction in those branches of education, he assured me, with emphasis, if he ever caught me with a book or with pen and ink, he'd give me a hundred lashes. He said he wanted me to understand that he bought niggers to work and not to educate. He never inquired a word of my past life or from whence I came. The mistress, however, cross-examined me frequently about Washington, which she supposed was my native city, and more than once remarked that I didn't talk or act like other niggers, and she was sure I'd seen more of the world than I admitted. My great object, always, was to invent means of getting a letter secretly into the post office, directed to some of my friends or family at the North. 
The difficulty of such an achievement cannot be comprehended by one unacquainted with the severe restrictions imposed upon me. In the first place, I was deprived of pen, ink, and paper. In the second place, a slave cannot leave his plantation without a pass, nor will a postmaster mail a letter for one without written instructions from his owner. I was in slavery nine years, and always watchful and on the alert, before I met with the good fortune of obtaining a sheet of paper. While Epps was in New Orleans, one winter, disposing of his cotton, the mistress sent me to Holmesville, with an order for several articles, and among the rest a quantity of fool's cap. I appropriated a sheet, concealing it in the cabin, under the board on which I slept. After various experiments, I succeeded in making ink by boiling white maple bark and with a feather plucked from the wing of a duck, manufactured a pen. When all were asleep in the cabin, by the light of the coals, lying upon my plank couch, I managed to complete a somewhat lengthy epistle. It was directed to an old acquaintance at Sandy Hill, stating my condition and urging him to take measures to restore me to liberty. This letter I kept a long time contriving measures by which it could be safely deposited in the post office. At length, a low fellow by the name of Armsby, hitherto a stranger, came into the neighborhood, seeking a situation as overseer. He applied to Epps and was about the plantation for several days. He went next over to Shaw's, nearby, and remained with him several weeks. Shaw was generally surrounded by such worthless characters, being himself noted as a gambler and unprincipled man. He had made a wife of his slave Charlotte, and a brood of young mulattoes were growing up in his house. Armsby became so much reduced at last that he was compelled to labor with the slaves. A white man working in the field is a rare and unusual spectacle on Bayou Boeuf. I improved every opportunity of cultivating his acquaintance privately desiring to obtain his confidence so far as to be willing to entrust the letter to his keeping. He visited Marksville, repeatedly, he informed me, a town some twenty miles distant, and there I proposed to myself the letter should be mailed. Carefully deliberating on the most proper manner of approaching him on the subject, I concluded finally to ask him simply if he would deposit a letter for me in the Marksville post office the next time he visited that place, without disclosing to him that the letter was written or any of the particulars it contained. For I had fears that he might betray me, and knew that some inducement must be held out to him of a pecuniary nature before it would be safe to confide in him. As late as one o'clock one night, I stole noiselessly from my cabin and crossing the field to Shaw's, found him sleeping on the piazza. I had but a few picayunes, the proceeds of my fiddling performances, but all I had in the world I promised him if he would do me the favor required. I begged him not to expose me if he could not grant the request. He assured me, upon his honor, he would deposit it in the Marksville post office, and that he would keep it an inviolable secret forever. Though the letter was in my pocket at the time, I dared not then deliver it to him, but stating I would have it written in a day or two, bade him good night, and returned to my cabin. It was impossible for me to expel the suspicions I entertained, and all night I lay awake, 
revolving in my mind the safest course to pursue. I was willing to risk a great deal to accomplish my purpose, but should the letter by any means fall into the hands of Epps, it would be a death blow to my aspirations. I was perplexed in the extreme. My suspicions were well-founded, as the sequel demonstrated. The next day but one, while scraping cotton in the field, Epps seated himself on the line fence between Shaw's plantation and his own in such a position as to overlook the scene of our labors. Presently, Armsby made his appearance and, mounting the fence, took a seat beside him. They remained two or three hours, all of which time I was in an agony of apprehension. That night, while broiling my bacon, Epps entered the cabin with his rawhide in his hand. Well, boy, he said, I understand I've got a learned nigger that writes letters and tries to get white fellows to mail them. Wonder if you know who he is. My worst fears were realized, and although it may not be considered entirely creditable, even under the circumstances, yet a resort to duplicity and downright falsehood was the only refuge that presented itself. Don't know nothing about it, Master Epps, I answered him, assuming an air of ignorance and surprise. Don't know nothing about it at all, sir. Once you over to Shaw's night before last, he inquired. No, Master, was the reply. Haven't you asked that fellow Armsby to mail a letter for you at Marksville? Why, Lord Master, I never spoke three words to him in all my life. I don't know what you mean. Well, he continued, Armsby told me today the devil was among my niggers, that I had one that needed close watching or he'd run away. And when I asked him why, he said, you come over to Shaw's and waked him up in the night and wanted him to carry a letter to Marksville. What have you got to say to that, huh? All I've got to say, Master, I replied, is there's no truth in it. How could I write a letter without any ink or paper? There's nobody I want to write to, because I ain't got no friends living, as I know of. That Armsby's a lying, drunken fellow, they say, and nobody believes him anyway. You know, I always tell the truth, and that I never go off the plantation without a pass. Now, master, I can see what that Armsby's after plain enough. Didn't he want you to hire him for an overseer? Yes, he wanted me to hire him, answered Epps. That's it, I said. He wants to make you believe we're all going to run away, and then he thinks you'll hire an overseer to watch us. He just made that story out of whole cloth because he wants to get a situation. It's all a lie, master. You may depend on it. Epps mused a while, evidently impressed with the plausibility of my theory, and exclaimed, I'm damned, Platt, if I don't believe you tell the truth. He must take me for a soft to think he can come it over me with them kind of yarns, mustn't he? Maybe he thinks he can fool me. Maybe he thinks I don't know nothing. Can't take care of my own niggers, eh? Soft soap, old Epps, eh? Ha! Damned Armsby. Set the dogs on him, Platt. And with many other comments, descriptive of Armsby's general character and his capability of taking care of his own business and attending to his own niggers, Master Epps left the cabin. As soon as he was gone, I threw the letter in the fire and with a desponding and despairing heart beheld the epistle which had cost me so much anxiety and thought and which I fondly hoped would have been my forerunner to the land of freedom, 
writhe and shrivel on its bed of coals and dissolve into smoke and ashes. Armsby, the treacherous wretch, was driven from Shaw's plantation not long subsequently, much to my relief, for I feared he might renew his conversation and perhaps induce Epps to credit him. I knew not now whether to look for deliverance. Hope sprang up in my heart only to be crushed and blighted. The summer of my life was passing away. I felt I was growing prematurely old, that a few years more, and toil and grief and the poisonous miasmas of the swamps would accomplish their work upon me, would consign me to the grave's embrace, to molder and be forgotten. Repelled, betrayed, cut off from the hope of succor, I could only prostrate myself upon the earth and groan in unutterable anguish. The hope of rescue was the only light that cast a ray of comfort on my heart. That was now flickering, faint and low. Another breath of disappointment would extinguish it altogether, leaving me to grope in midnight darkness to the end of my life.